to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 128. What is happiness? What makes us happy? What is going on in the brain when we feel and think and want happiness and don't get it? All those questions are going to be answered in this episode by author and neuroscientist Dean Burnett, who has a new book out called Happy Brain, in which he investigates what makes us happy, not just out there in the world, our experiences, the context, the environments that we get into, the pressures, social and otherwise, but what makes us happy physically in the brain? What are the neurochemicals at play? What are the brain structures? What are the interactions and the networks that make us feel, experience, express, and desire happiness? That is what we're going to talk about in this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. I'm on the road. Forgive the audio that you're hearing right now. I'm recording it with an on-the-road microphone. This interview is just going to be a conversation between me and Dean about his new book, and I think you're going to like it. I love Dean, and his book just came out here in the United States. It's called Happy Brain, And without any more introduction, here is the interview. So you you begin the book, well, first of all, hey, Dean, how are you? (laughs) I'm good, I'm good, thank you. I'm I'm happy. How happy? If you could measure your happiness on a scale from uh, one to ten today, where are you? I'm probably about six. I've just mm. done a four-hour drive after a conference yesterday, so this you know, this is not me at my my peak. I'm sort of kind of spent <laughs> in terms of resources, but I'm still getting to do what I love. So, you know, when, the, yeah, yeah. When's, yeah. We'll talk about doing what you love in a minute. When, when, when's the last time you were at like a nine or a ten? Oh, quite recently. Like I got two small children. They're very nice and stuff. So I'm very much aware of these things and. Uh, and also, um, I, I uh, so I opened a new pot of coffee this morning. That was like nine or ten, you know, just punct- <laughs> puncturing the instant seal. That, that'll do for me. I'm very easily pleased. It turns out I can be really quite, uh, quite, quite happy for, for very minimal input. Yeah. Well, this is actually we could just start right here because okay, a, uh, you open the coffee was a nine, and your children's bliss was a nine. Uh, it's <laughs> it seems if we were trying to categorize happiness, those things would not even come close to one another. But no, um, no. So what's going on there? Well, I'm, just, I'm obviously being slightly facetious. Like, you know, I don't think <laughs> yeah. opening a new pot of coffee is the same as being a parent. <laughs> Those are very different things. But, <laughs> like, the uh, well, okay, some people may think otherwise. I'm not going to judge you for that. That's uh, that's a big part of what I wrote about. Like, it's such a subjective thing. Like, what do you want to do? What you like to do? What 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 appeals to you is very much an independent and subjective uh, variable in most people's happiness. But Again, it, there's, a long, there's a big difference between instant and fleeting gratification and long-term happiness, contentment. And I think that's one of the first things I look at and I try to find out what is happiness. It's such a such an umbrella term for so many different things. And I think one of the more stark things was this look at it and say, look, you can be happy in so many ways. You can be euphoric. You can be ecstatic. You can be content. You can be relaxed. You Very rarely are you ecstatically ecstatically relaxed that isn't a thing that people experience because that's not really how it works like ecstasy and euphoria are very high energy high stimulation things whereas contentment and relaxation are really low energy very passive things and these aren't sort of they don't fit together very well but they would both come under the umbrella of happiness so there are so many different things which can make you happy for 
or whatever length of time and in what to whatever extent that to, to try and pin down one specific thing is uh, seems to be a, of a, of a <clears throat> in a bit of a losing game there if you try to use that approach as I found out very quickly. Yeah, you, you definitely uh, do this pivot in the beginning because you, you you begin the book by explaining that when you when you set out to find a, a new topic to write about a new book, um, a lot of your friends and, and uh, trusted. Uh, um, you know, confidants said, just write about what makes us happy. And so you took that very literally and, uh, and decided, okay, I will. And that's, it's good that you took that approach because early on, this is something that I've, I've faced. This is something that I think a lot of science writers, um, deal with, especially if you talk about the brain, um, because there are a lot, there's a lack of a lot of solid answers to what seem like simple questions and just mm-hmm. trying to define, you know, what is happiness or what is, uh, you know, what is, love what is uh sleep even uh you will find all of a sudden you're thrown back to the days of togas and and uh, columns because you'll have to get into a philosophical debate with some evidence behind your argument and that just ends up being one of those weird reads uh so you instead say let's talk about what makes us happy but because i have you here and i want to listen to you squirm let's talk about those (laughs) things first what is the point of happiness dean what is the point of this (laughs) <laughs> that was like a very nihilist approach there. What is the point? And then just like, go off and uh, do absolutely nothing. So, uh, but yeah, that's that is one of the things which has come up a lot. And I do have, I don't know, I've been publicizing this book for a couple of weeks now because it was out in the UK last week and there's a bit of a build up and done a few media interviews. And there's always been uh, like the tendency to come around to saying, so Dean, but what are your tips for happiness? Or what is, what is, your, what is, your, what is the secret of happiness? As if like it's been accepted that there is such a thing that is mm. a very uh you know it's, it's just a simple like one two three steps or it's like a simple like set of behaviors you can use to trigger happiness and it's sort of dis- dispensed from your brain like 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 money from an atm if you put the right pin code in and that's not you know, that's not how it works but the point of it is and oh yeah i'm i think i mean based on everything i've seen like, a lot of it comes down to uh well the brain trying to encourage you to do things or, or, or avoid things with the unpleasant sensations. So things that make you happy are, at the most uh, fundamental level, things which are beneficial uh, in some way, shape or form. And what counts as beneficial is obviously massive range there because the human brain is so complex and can find merit in so many different things. And these things make us happy. Like we are sort of starting a new pot of coffee, like I think it's a satisfying smell. It's a, it's a nice sensation to being a parent. So being able to spread your genes and raise small children, which we've really evolved to really care about a great deal. And these are sort of things which in an evolutionary sense are good and they make us feel pleasure and happiness and contentment and so on. So the idea that of lasting happiness is something which people have asked about a lot, like the idea that you can find a way to be permanently and by default happy. That is technically not really how it works, nor not how it should work, because the thing, the point of being happy is, from what I can tell from the basic neuroscientific side of things, is to encourage you to do things, to, mm. to, to do things which are good, which are, which, are, which are nice, which are pleasurable, which are helpful. And if you're always happy, if you are happy by default, then there's no there's no difference between doing something which is good and doing something which isn't good. Like if you have an employer, or if you if you employ people and you say, look, you build this building, I'll pay you this much, or you do absolutely nothing, I'll pay you the same amount. Odds are they'll do nothing. Like there's no real reason to do it other than 
their own sense of curiosity, perhaps. But and that's a similar thing. If you're always happy, if everything makes you happy, then technically nothing does because there's no real difference. And the brain quickly habituates and adapts to things which are consistent and don't result in any notable changes. Like that's the, the brain isn't fixed and life isn't static. And these are like the most important points to take home from the whole thing as far as I'm you know, as far as these interviews I've done are concerned, in that mm. you can't have lasting happiness because unless you have a fixed state. So, like, you know, like people say, like, you want to get married, that's happily ever after. Well, that's not how life works. We are long lived beings. We have goals, ambitions, and dreams. And day in, day out, things change. Life changes. Our body changes. We change. We learn new things. We adapt. We experience stuff. And the idea that you can know, well, I got married 10 years ago, so I must be still happy. That's not how anything works mm. on, the, on the neurological level. So, so yeah, so the, the happiness is, as far as I can make out, uh, a way to make us, it's, it's like a motivator. It sort of mm. encourages us to do things which are good for us and beneficial and which cause us, cause us to be happy and to avoid things which don't. And But if you're always happy, then that has no value. And yeah. therefore, lasting permanent happiness isn't really a helpful thing to, to aim for. Yeah, I, I, this reminds me in, of uh, something that uh, um, an, uh, a singer, um, Maynard Keenan, said one time that, um, and I would like to hear if this is uh, true or this is just uh, some uh, musing on, on the part of a creative person who was trying to do the toga thing like we all do when it comes to these uh, philosophical concepts. Um, he was saying that uh, for, you know, happiness is not. Uh, you know, you get the birthday cake and yay, we're happy, we're set. And I think this is reiterating what you said, but this is, you know, happiness is not getting the job or getting the car. Um, he said something akin to, I'm paraphrasing, happiness is like a, a, a plant that is where flowers are, are both blooming and dying at the same time. Uh, so it's, what is your, does that sound, does that resonate with you? Yeah, very much so. It's It reflects back to the thing about the, the world and our brains aren't static as a result. Like the static brain is a dead brain. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't actually function in the way it's meant to. So the brain's always adapting, changing, shifting, responding to an environment which is inherently chaotic and unpredictable and always in flux because that is just like how life in a sort of chronological universe works. And that's good. You know, that's how we get stuff done. That's how things happen. Uh, so the idea that, you know, you can have this you know, happiness trapped in amber is a misleading one. And I focus on this a lot when it comes to things like love and relationships, because that's where you hear happily ever after sort of used more often. Like when you find someone and marry them, settle down, that you know, culturally, that's uh, that's it now, you're done. And that's not how, how it works. Like the way I sort of present it is like, yeah, you know, we, we are so pressured into settling down. That's like, it's a thing called the relationship escalator. It's like a cultural imposition of rules and boundaries and you know progress in a relationship sense that uh, we, we sort of have built up over the years and because a lot of people in western society they, they find the idea of an, an arranged marriage where your family or parents find a partner for you they find that sort of really unsettling the idea that someone would choose your love life that's just weird and wrong but you know, even though plenty of cultures practice this approach and seem to be managing okay but you know the fact is we do the same thing just not quite that way around we have this cultural ideal of you must find someone by age 25 you must move in with them soon you must be married and then you must have children at this age and you must live live in the country at this age this we have our own set of systems and rules and regulations and these work for many people but they don't work for everyone so we have this idea of what a relationship should be like and part of it is like once you settle down once you find someone that's it you're done you are happy then and that's not how the brain works like you know it's like the idea that once you marry someone 
you can't find anyone else attractive. That isn't, <laughs> that's not how things happen. Like the brain, those parts don't just atrophy, they don't just decline because we've got a, a long-term partner now. Although that would make things easier, I suppose, but that doesn't, that's not how it works. So the idea that, you know, you have a relationship, you have, you've settled down and therefore you're done. That's not how, how the world or our brains function. So like I, the way I like it to is like when you've, settled down with someone where you've found someone to love and be with that's like getting yourself a car like you've always wanted a car you've got a car now and but then you don't just put it in the driveway and look at it you use it you take it out places and it needs to be maintained it needs to be repaired it needs to be refueled it needs to be you know the tires need to be checked and similar with a relationship you can't just say well i'm in a relationship now done that's mm. not you know two you're two human beings you have lives and existences and constantly changing parameters and careers and then you want to start a family or you don't want to start a family and things you know, life goes on and that's I think this is the main part like life goes on so therefore what makes you happy today may not make you happy tomorrow or may make you happier or you may have to refine it again so yeah this idea of static fixed lasting happiness is something i really would like to discourage or sort of say that that's not helpful guys don't you're chasing, like, you're chasing the unicorn there. There's nothing there. You're just, you're just jumping out shadows. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, it's it's weird how long it can take you to figure uh, this out. Um, there's this uh, Alan Watts quote. Uh, I, I dig Alan Watts. I apologize if that's uh, if that's one of those things you're like, oh, come on. And he's sort of eye rolling uh, behind no, the microphone. Fine. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you like him too. Um <laughs> He has a great uh, bit in one of his books about, and he also spoke about this a bit, and the South Park uh, guys actually made a little video about this, and I may put it in the show. Um, hmm. We talked about um, there's a lot of happiness in the West often is presented as a series of milestones with a crowning achievement at the end. Uh, so, yeah. you know, you go to school and you get your thing, and then you go to you do the job and you get your thing, and then you get the, the house and you get your thing, and then you keep reaching these milestones and then at the end uh there you are you're happy um and his metaphor was it's happiness is more uh and i think you may have been intuiting this uh before we had any kind of neurological basis for um agreeing with him that uh, he said it's more like a symphony where you know it would be it would be like watching a symphony and then waiting for the last note and that's you're like oh yes i got to the last note and now the symphony is good um, and he said that, you know, in life is the same way. Like you, um, you can't be waiting for that last milestone. You have to dance to the symphony and that's what creates happiness. And I'm wondering if, uh, as a actual neuroscientist, was Alan Watts right about that? Yeah, I think that's pretty much a, <clears throat> yes, I think that's a largely spot on analogy. The one I use, it's like, uh, you know, if it's some sort of key or secret to happiness, it, that's sort of like saying, you should read the last page of the book so you know what's happening. Great. Like I'm, I don't know any of these characters. I don't know what the point was, but I know what happens. And therefore, that's, that's a book. You know, you, it's completely undermining the whole point of it. Like you can take narcotics. I mean, you can't take narcotics, but it is physically possible to do so. And they will trigger the reward pathway in the brain, in, 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 the, in the brain directly. Like this dopamine reward pathway deep in the center, which arguably at the most fundamental level is sort of where happiness comes from. Because that provides us with the sensation or the ability to experience pleasure, however, or whatever sort that is. So you, know, you could argue that is the center of happiness in the brain. But that's to me is like saying, well, a house is made of bricks. So if you get a pile of bricks, then you've got a house, which you don't. There's so much more to it. And the brain does so many different things. And there's so many you know, layers of complexity and analysis and deduction and calculation 
before the brain decides that pathway should be triggered or not. And these are all the different ways that we, in which we're made happy. And so drugs sort of leap, leapfrog all that and just go straight to the source. And therefore we experience pleasure and bliss for nothing and therefore become addicted to that and have no real function. So like you know, drugs aren't, they don't make you happy. They let you experience pleasure. And then the brain adapts to that. And that really undermines the whole, the whole system. So that is a sort of way of looking at it in the neurological level. But at the more sort of psychological level, like the more complex things, like a lot of it's to do with, like, say, motivation. And so much motivation is goal-orientated. That's what the, the literature describes it as. So you have a goal and you work towards it. And that could be, you know, in simpler creatures, that's very basic. Like, my goal is to eat. There is food. I will move towards the food. There we are. My goal is to not die. Look, there's a big thing with sharp teeth. I'll avoid that as fast as I can. Therefore, I won't stay alive. And so these are sort of, that's how goal things work. But... Because humans have such much more, far more powerful brains that we can envisage future scenarios and we can anticipate and predict. Um, some would argue that we have many different selves. We have an ideal self that we want to become. So say your ideal self could be a champion athlete. And uh, we also have an ought self, which we think is the person you should be, you ought to be now in order to achieve that. So you have you know, your, your ideal self as an athlete and your ought self goes to the gym and doesn't eat too much pizza. That's, you know, it moves you closer towards that ideal self, that goal. And so much of what we do is sort of working towards that. That's why some jobs can make you so unhappy because they stop you from being or moving towards your ideal self. And a lot of jobs don't actually you know, allow you to pursue your ambitions because we're always told we can be what we want to be in the Western world, like you know, the whole American dream thing, like nothing's holding you back. So I want to be an astronaut and you work in Starbucks and that's, you know, those aren't compatible. Those aren't the same thing. Nothing against people working in Starbucks, but, you know, being a barista, I'm assuming, is not as much fun as flying a spaceship. <laughs> so, you know, that's where a lot of dissatisfaction in the work comes into it. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so, like, it's it's the things that move us towards our ideal self. They tend to make us happier because the brain can make this analysis saying, ah, I'm doing this, that helped me do that, I'm closer to that, and I'm happier now. So if you could just, like, if there was a magic bullet, you could just take a pill or something and suddenly become an athlete, you wouldn't experience as much happiness because, mm. you, you know, there's no actual effort involved there's no learning there's no progress and so the idea of having this you know sort of like say magic bullet or easy answer or you know secret formula that that doesn't really reflect how humans work in that the, the act of getting there and getting to this point is a big part of what can make us happy and it also makes us better people because in terms of our functioning and our well-being there's a thing called emotional competence because you know you have people who are born into absolute wealth and never want for anything, never struggle for anything, they don't tend to be a lot happier, whether they're president or not. They um, they actually do end up being kind of sort of unhappy people. They, 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 they are very uh, grasping. They can be very greedy. They can be very dissatisfied with everything because they don't have that sort of developmental vocabulary built up of how to process and deal with things from different walks of life. That's why they say, like, if you've never had your heart broken, you're not going to be a very good partner with someone because you don't really know what that experience is like. You can't really empathize well with anyone else. And a similar thing goes with happiness. Like unless you've experienced unhappiness, you're not going to really appreciate the things that make you happy. You know, you need a basis of comparison. And when one of the problems is that people, oftentimes people do achieve their goals. They know that's the thing, but follow your dreams. Sometimes you get there. And then like people who do this, they tend to be a bit sort of, oh, okay then. And then they sort of lose purpose. They're quite happy for a bit and then suddenly the brain goes i got nothing to do this is 
it's just dull. Like I, I spoke to Kevin Green, a millionaire entrepreneur. He said about people, you know, back home, this farming community where you grew up, they you know, work all their lives. They finally retire. They're going to be happy, and they're dead within like two years because they've lost all function. Yeah. They've lost all routine, yeah. Yeah. and the stress of that is enough to be really quite damaging. So yeah, like the idea of just suddenly achieving your goals easily isn't necessarily the best approach of, uh, from any angle. Yeah. Mm. Okay, we'll get to all that. I want to. This is all so good. Uh, uh, let me ask some specific questions because first, the first thing I mean, this is I mean, I just wanted to like basically rant back and forth with you, but the, there is something that I um, I I know you had to think this. I thought this reading your book, uh, you you were when you're talking about reward pathways and neurochemicals and the dopaminergic pathway and the mesolimbic pathway and these these portions of the brain um, or these um, these. Uh, maybe not necessarily portions, but um, the way the, these the way the brain uh, sort of delivers up the happy juices. Um, mm. It uh, you say that you know whenever the brain notices you've done something that it approves of, which I would assume would be you know something that's relatively adaptive, um, it rewards you with a bit of dopamine or something else. Um, and I've heard this a lot over the years, and it seems to me that this introduces a kind of homunculus situation, you know, a Cartesian theater sort of thing, because. The brain is rewarding the brain for doing something the brain approves of and wants the brain to keep doing. And you start to, <laughs> to, to spin from it because who or what is offering this gift and who is receiving it? Why does the brain operate on these internal carrots? Um, and, you know, how is the brain not just going to get straight to this and bypass all this rigmarole to get to its, can to its candy? Help, help me, Dean. What is happening here? What, what are we talking about? <laughs> Yeah, well, this is obviously one of the really challenging aspects of writing about the brain. When you sort of refer to the brain as like a specific object or a self-contained entity, you're often overlooking the fact that you are your brain. That is you. Like if I say your brain does this, your brain does that, then what I'm saying is you do this, you do that, you yeah. are you know, but, doing but this. You but you are rewarding yeah. you. How does it work? What is going on here? Well, it's a, it's a lot easier when you sort of reflect on the fact that the brain the brain isn't one cohesive object it's not one single thing the brain is a massive ball of different systems and disparate mechanisms and networks and connections all intertwined in extremely complex and you know, weird ways but still separate things like functioning doing specific roles and that was obviously quite a time that was not believed to be to be, believed to be the case like there was a theory back in the 1800s that that you know, the dominant one was that the brain is homogenous every part of the brain is involved in every aspect it does uh, i think from what i found out a lot less because for, um, phrenology was in the, in the uh, popular for a while and that sort of put off put off a lot of the, the great thinkers that you know anything to do with brain compartmentalization is too close to phrenology which we don't like so boo to that <laughs> and slowly but surely we sort of came around to think actually no it is actually more modular it isn't um but it isn't totally modular like i talked to professor chris chambers about this and that the i a lot of the media representation of the brain and brain scanning is suggests that there are like the brain sort of like Lego. There are different bricks, more in different bits, or like a car engine. So like this is the piston. This does this. This is like the the spark plug. This does this. And I know that each part has one specific function and that alone. But that's not how the brain works at all. So you know there are the brain itself is like a massive ball of complementary but disparate separate systems. So there is one system for 
distributing reward and another system for analyzing whether that reward is warranted another system which provides information to say well long term this will happen like short term this will happen another system to say actually no don't do that because of this that and the other and there's another system saying well you you guys keep doing that i'm just gonna write this down because i'm the memory system and there's a part of that saying actually no add this emotional flavor to it because that's also important to it and so the, the, anyway, it's, it's like a big gang of people trying to it's like a committee trying to do loads of different things at once but each one has a specific sort of job to do in this particular scenario so mm-hmm. there are you know there's so many different parts of the brain and that's actually one of the main uh, well, main i'll say one of the key mysteries or questions that is humans have what appears to be a single consciousness and again, we are we have an, a, a, an awareness of i am myself i yeah. am one thing and how does how do all these different parts fizz in a way how do they unify into this one framework of i am an individual I, how do they become one mind and that's no, that's borderline philosophy again but that oh, is yeah, that is sure. a question which um which a lot of neuroscientists are looking into so by asking so like well which part of the brain is in charge of this and you mentioned the homunculus thing like there is an element of that in that you know like the frontal cortex would be the most human part of the brain it's like with the short-term memory and the impulse control and the higher reasoning that's all that's, that all resides there particularly in the prefrontal cortex whereas the more animalistic more primitive stuff like the limbic system that's deeper in that's more subconscious so you can argue there's differences between the conscious and the subconscious brain and they overlap and inter- interact intertwine in many ways mm. but they do do different things at different rates like i think it's one thing i mentioned in the book about empathy and that there's subconscious empathy and there is conscious empathy a theory of mind so subconsciously you can read someone else's emotions and you can feel them yourself that's what we do we're very social species we interact and theory of mind is that you something seems to be something only humans can do and that other creatures can come close but we can clearly do it you can almost like run a simulation of what this person is thinking inside their own head you're aware that this other person has a mind which is different to yours and you can sort of extract and extrapolate and stimulate and suggest and think about what they are thinking different to your own thoughts and you know, these conscious and subconscious empathies they intertwine a lot, but some people are really good at one, they're really bad at the other, and vice versa. So you get you get someone who will, you, know, you tell them about your horrible day in work, and they'll nod, and they'll smile, and they'll go, oh, no, and they'll, oh, no, and they'll do the whole sigh, and, oh, that's awful. They, they'll do. They'll make all the right noises in all the right ways, and odds are they are genuinely feeling your distress, your anguish, your, you know, your anger at what's going on. And when you finish, then they'll say, well, why didn't you just get another job? And that's like, what? that's the most insulting thing to say right now. Because I've clearly have thought of that. Why? Why? Like, so they have very good unconscious empathy, but very bad theory of mind. Whereas someone might have the opposite. They might actually, you, know, you tell them about your work woes and they'll sit there staring at you and it'll be really uncomfortable the way they just stare at you and don't move and don't react at all. <laughs> and when you finish telling them, they'll just come up with a perfect solution because they have very good conscious empathy, but very bad subconscious empathy. They don't empathize at all, but... They can easily, you know, they can very good at extrapolating what you're thinking and approaching it from your perspective. So, so yeah, so like there are so many different layers of it. So to, to, to pin it down to one thing would be tricky, but you know, we, we are slowly edging towards that and ability to do that. So, so yes, to answer your question, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I wanted to hear. Uh, good night. Uh, so, uh, I'll say that a lot. I have no qualms about that. Uh, well, this is my favorite thing about neuroscience is that, you know, uh, or even any social science and, you know, uh, neuroscience is, uh, is part of that in, in some ways is that we, you know, we are going to talk about philosophical ideas. We're basically going back into the 
to philosophy and then quantifying things and saying, well, let's take a look. And um, we're going to naturally uh, both take from philosophy and then hand back off everything we find. So we're going to say, I don't know a lot, which is good. Um, and any scientist that says, I don't know a lot is a real scientist to me. So thank you very much. And, uh, um, like, well, this does bring something up to me. Um, if we're talking about this, this sort of, um, the, you know, I'm rewarding myself or, or you are rewarding you, that sort of thing. And, and so I wonder what your, the take is on this, you know, when we wonder about happiness, um, is this human happiness, is it, it has to be very similar to say like dog happiness, right? It was a biological organism, uh, with many of the same genes, uh, evolving in the same way. Um, but I think that, you know, obviously they're qualitatively different in some way, uh, you know, umvelts and all that kind of thing, but is, you know, mammal happiness different from reptile happiness? Can, can it, so what I'm asking you, this is, this is a perfect question for you, Dean. Uh, can, can a boa constrictor get happy? Can a scorpion be happy? I mean, they, they must have some sort of um, nervous system, reward system thing. Uh, and it seems as though there has to be some level of complexity involved when, um, because there's a point where this is an, a purely adaptive function that then becomes something that we are, the, the thing that we're talking about, this, uh, I would like to say, more complex, higher version of it, if you want to get hierarchical about it. And, you know, so is, is the happiness that we're discussing philosophically a, an adaptive thing as well, or is it a, an, a happy accident byproduct of the complexity that is, you know, we're talking about something that is similar across all organisms, even boa constrictors and scorpions. But at some point, do we get to something that's qualitatively different when we start talking about human happiness? What do you think of that? I do think there are, there are obviously overlaps between what goes on in our heads and what goes on in the heads of less sophisticated creatures. So you know, a lot of the stuff that makes us happy is basic biological stimulus. So like you know, we eat something sweet, we feel, oh, that's a nice thing. That's good. That gives me lots of energy. That's a good sugar. I feel pleasure from that. And other creatures will feel or taste similar things for um, whatever food is good for them. Like cats have no sense of sweet. They don't really get a lot from sugar. So things like lions, they get all their energy from meat. So they will they will experience it differently. But I don't doubt that a part of their brain would say, you just did a good thing. So here's some reward for that. So they will experience what we would probably define as pleasure and uh, well, enjoyment in the most sort of in the most raw and sophisticated way at uh, at what they, whatever it is they experienced. And so many different creatures, like the very social creatures, they do get similar levels of pleasure and contentment from interactions. Like pretty much every animal, almost every species or on a macroscopic scale, they tend to play in some way when they're youth, when, when they're young and you know, when, when, in, in, their youth, in their youthful stages. <clears throat> so that would suggest that you know, interaction and rough and tumble and all this, sort of, it's a very rewarding thing to do. So they would arguably be happy, as we describe it, when they are interacting and playing with their fellows and their nestmates or whatever you want to call it or whatever they happen to be and like social grooming is a big thing too like there are this has been shown to trigger the opiate response in many like many creatures brains especially primates like bonobos and things they're very social any interaction like that causes a sort of the reward pathway to trigger and if you isolate rats rats are social creatures if you take them when they're very young and isolate them away from their peers and their group they 
they develop in very what would look like stunted and distorted ways. They develop a lot of anxiety and what we would call like an, the animal analog of mental health problems. Mm. Uh, so like there clearly is, uh, you know, like a, these similar systems at work there in the, the more primitive creatures. But a lot, also a lot of what makes us happy is avoiding stress. Like this, we have a threat detection system in our brain, like most creatures do, which like scans the available environment and looks for anything which is dangerous or threatening. And if we find it, we you know the flight or flight response kicks in, and we have all the adrenaline and cortisol going through our systems, and that stresses us out. And when that part of the brain is quieted down by because we are in a very familiar setting, we are surrounded by people who make us feel safe. That causes this sense of contentment. It's like not so much direct happiness and pleasure, but it's very much a case of no threat, no stress, no danger. That's nice. I like that. That makes me happy. So yeah, these are the sort of similar things as to what the more primitive creatures would experience. But because we've become so much more cognitively advanced and more sophisticated, we can, like I say, we've built up layers of complexity and application around these things. Like the idea of having a sense of self, that becomes a, largely a, a human function. That we, we can sort of see ourselves in this way and the ability to look at how other people view us. Like a lot of what makes us happy is largely based on other people, how they perceive us, how they interact with us, and how, how we think they perceive us. You know, think like the, the emotions, embarrassment, guilt, uh, grief, these only make any sense. They only actually exist in terms of our interactions with other people. You can't grieve by, by yourself. You, know, you, you can't have an internal, you can grieve because you've lost something or someone, but it's not an internal thing. Like you can be happy because you've done something that you like or it's good for you. That's a sort of self-contained thing, but you can't grieve without anyone else being involved. Same as like embarrassment doesn't make any sense if you're on your own. If you're you living on a desert island, you probably would walk around with no clothes on because you can. You don't care anymore. There's nothing nothing to stop you. The crabs aren't going to mind. And that, and that well, I assume they won't. Maybe they have their own their own civilization. Let's, let's not go into that sort of kind of worms and the worms as well yes <laughs> the lots, worms of, as well. lots of invertebrates i'm bringing up here um, so uh, there's uh, yeah so there's all that so we we have built layers and layers and layers of complexity on the basic framework of you know reward and pleasure and uh, reinforcement and we can con- construct this whole other layer of quasi-philosophical or you know just deeply complex uh, sensations and reward. Like we, we have psychological needs now. Like that's something which I found out when I studied the whole thing about money. Does that make you happy or not? And the evidence suggests that money does make you happier. The more money you have, the happier you tend to be up to a point. And this point does seem to be, according to a lot of the theories, that that's where your needs are met, essentially. So you need, because of the way we've structured our society, you need money to survive. Without it, you'll, you're in serious danger. The more money you have, the safer you are, and the more your needs can be met. So if you get to the point where you've got millions in the bank, I mean, I wouldn't know what that's like, but I'm assuming it's probably quite nice. It'll take a great deal of disruption and harm and risk and stupid behavior to lose all that. People still do that, but once you've got millions just saved up, then you're like, well, I'm not really in any danger now of losing my house or not being able to find food. And then that's when money loses its potency. It still becomes rewarding. It still stays rewarding, but it's not as rewarding as it was. It takes a lot more money to make you less happy, less happier to a lesser extent. And part of the, and then this comes in, and then other things like psychological needs take in. This desire we humans have for approval, to be respected, to be liked, to be, you know, to feel a sense of achievement, contentment. And uh, these are all more 
philosophical, more complex needs that we still all all have, really, because of our complex evolution. So these things arguably wouldn't be what you know, a lot of less complex creatures would be bothered by, but they, they do make us quite quite happy. So yeah, we have built our own level of complexity and sophistication around mm. the basic blocks of happiness. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. I am always trying to learn as much as I can, and I'm sure it's the same for you. That's why you're listening to this podcast. And The Great Courses Plus is the streaming service created for people just like us. If you haven't signed up yet, you need to. It's one of my favorite ways to spend time. You learn from these leading professors and experts about anything that interests you, psychology, politics, math, science, even how to take better photos. And there's unlimited access to more than 10,000 fascinating lectures. You can watch or listen along anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. And right now there's a new course called Why You Are Who You Are, Investigations into Human Personality. I know you'll like this. If you listen to the last couple episodes, this is just right up the alley of what we've been talking about. Drawing on research in psychology and neuroscience and genetics, this course looks at the differences in people's personalities, where these differences came from, how they shape your everyday life, how they shape the lives of others, and it will help you better understand yourself and those around you through the lens of human personality. And this is a really robust topic in psychology with a lot of evidence behind it. You'll learn everything there is to know about it in this course, Why You Are Who You Are, Investigations in Human Personality, one of 10,000 lectures available at The Great Courses Plus. And these lectures aren't just one video each. Usually there'll be like 24 videos within one lecture series. So you get everything you would like to know about that topic from someone who is an expert in that topic. And now you can get it all for free. You get a free month of unlimited access to enjoy this and any of the other lectures they have because we've arranged a special limited time offer for the listeners of this show. You will get so much out of the Great Courses Plus. All you have to do, sign up through this URL, get one month free by doing this. Go to the Great Courses Plus dot com slash smart. That's it. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. We're interviewing Dean Burnett, and we're just going to join that conversation right where we left off. You, you say that the, we can go through each one of these very quickly. So when it comes to dopamine, um, you say that uh, the more unexpected the reward, the more dopamine. Uh, and then, uh, and so some of the things that bring us happiness in life, um, we get the surge at first and then it tapers off as it becomes more expected. Uh, and you have this great thing about um, how strangely we get happier finding money in our pants uh that we're as we're on laundry day than we do on payday so if you could just speak to that for a second yeah well i think if you find money in your pants i mean if you are a stripper that's quite a common thing i'm told you know <laughs> i've never actually worked as one myself i don't think i have the qualifications no one's going to pay to see this on a poll but that's <laughs> but that, that's, that's, that's i don't know dean i don't know dean we live in a good we live in a time where you can find your audience Yes, I suppose, but I think they'll be quite niche and quite quite spread far apart. I couldn't set up a business, I think, which would be self-sustaining. But uh, you know, if if this book doesn't go well, I have to look into it. Perhaps. Yeah, so, uh, you will get emails now. Well, um, I good ones or bad ones? 
Oh, good. There will be. Well, it all depends oh, on you, Dean. Sure well, I look forward to that. <laughs> That'll be fun. That'll make me happy. That's good. But, um, <laughs> back to the uh, back to the, the actual logical question that you asked. It it is. It, it comes back to the thing about how the brain adapts. Like earlier, we talked about you know things don't cause lasting happiness because that's not how the brain works. The brain does adapt, and it does, it does adapt very quickly to things which become predictable. Because um, that's, that's a survival mechanism, like things which are predictable, things which occur regularly, often, uh, reliably, and have no real consequence. Like they don't they, they don't signal anything else. Like take Pavlov's dogs being the obvious example, associative learning, in that you, know, you, you play a tone to a dog and they'll go, okay, that, that's a noise, what do I do with that? And you play it regularly, they'll just completely ignore it. But then you play it and then pair it with food, think, oh, that's what that means, that's good. And then they become more responsive to it. Like that tone then makes them salivate because they, pardon me, they've learned that tone is a signifier of something something biologically relevant is about to happen. If that doesn't happen, then we quickly tune out these you know, these inconsequential uh, stimulus and sensory sensory you know, these inconsequential stimuli. And that's something that's basic basic habituation is an underlying property of the brain. So things which become predictable. The brain stops paying attention to them because you know the brain's a massively demanding organ. It uh, you know takes up a third of our body's energy just existing, just by you know, staying in a resting state, keeping alive. So cognitive resources are really quite. You know, it, it, it has to be quite uh, sparing with a lot of them. It doesn't. The brain can't do everything at once. It needs to say, right, this is important. Focus on this. Ignore that because we don't have the time or the energy or the resources to dedicate to that. So anything it, it learns, which means little or nothing, which doesn't require attention, doesn't get it. So if you are, even if you are in a very good good wage, like you know, say £10,000 a month or something, or $10,000 know, every week perhaps, if you're one of the Jeff Bezos types, that's, you know, that's good. But you quickly grow used to it because it becomes predictable, it becomes familiar. So every Friday I check my account, it's got this much money, that's what should happen now. That's how it works. The first few times it'll be great. Like, my God, look at all that. And then you sort of adapt to it. That becomes the new normal. Uh, whereas again, like you say, if you just do your laundry and reach into a pocket and you find twenty dollars, like hey, I didn't didn't expect twenty dollars. Now I've got it. That's brilliant. And that, mm. that's, that becomes far more stimulating because it's a known reward. It's a you know, it's a quantifiable reward, but it also wasn't predicted, wasn't expected. But there's also the flip side of that in that things that are too unfamiliar, too unpredictable, they tend to put people off. They can be quite unpleasant because the brain also doesn't like uncertainty. It doesn't like anything new and unfamiliar and too strange. It doesn't fit our mental model of how the world works. It means we don't have any way to you know, sort of counter it or react to it, or it, it makes us. It shows our lack of understanding. All things the brain doesn't like, and a lot of other creatures show this too. They show sort of neophobia, like a fear of things new, and also novelty preference. So they like new things, and also they're afraid of them. And I know mm. that sounds contradictory, but you got to imagine like different contexts require different responses. And some of the evidence suggests that. Animals like mice, they like exploring new things if they're in a familiar environment, which uh, you know, which provides a sense of safety, a safe place to retreat to. So you put them in a completely new place, they'll be scared, they'll be nervous, they'll be like really hesitant, they look around, well, I don't know where this is, what's going on. If you put a new thing in their home environment, they go, oh, look, a new thing, that's good, because they know they are somewhere safe to retreat to, somewhere, somewhere familiar to go back to and not have to worry about this thing. And so like this... This is like a nice little balance you have to try and achieve of familiarity and novelty at the same time, because the brain likes both these things. 
And I think that's why, like, the Marvel Universe is doing so well, because these are all very familiar characters, all very well known, but all doing sort of new things in each film. Like, oh, that's good. I, I want to see this character do that. I want to see this do that. And that's why it's, it's so much easier to do a sequel or a franchise uh, than it is to create something new from scratch, because you don't have that baseline level of familiarity, which people are sort of drawn to. And again, the same thing happens. Like, so something unpredictable, like you get a nice dopamine hit, or like you get a nice activity in the road path very stronger than if it's coming if you're watching the same thing over and over again so so yeah so there's lots of things that work there but novelty and familiarity are sort of both in the mix when it comes to what we find pleasant and rewarding hmm. um so in the and it's interesting because the absence of reward will drop your dopamine and uh and the presence of reward will bring it back in it's interesting that because that's i think that we go there a lot i've even seen people say you know this is um you know this is the happiness molecule and that's something you want to do attack early on because there's so much of that in popular science writing like you know this is mm. this is the happiness secret and uh so you kind of go through each chemical uh you talk about endorphins um and uh how the, you know heroin is only 20 percent as potent as the natural thing which is amazing to even believe um <laughs> and uh but it comes up in childbirth uh, like well, we, we produce it during childbirth or the runner's high um <laughs> and it's a sort of natural pain relief but you know in absence of pain you apply this and it's not just an analgesic it makes us feel super good um <laughs> But I like, uh, I was interested by how uh, endorphins sort of, um, when you were talking about how they related to task management, like when we, uh, how it signals when we are done with the task. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that's, that seems to be like another, <clears throat> more, a more recent, um, I say like discovery is probably the wrong word for it, but a more recent application of endorphins that the literature seems to be uncovering in that it's such a low level of it that it doesn't really register on the whole pleasure-causing uh, aspect of endorphins. What, what, what are they most familiar, what they're most famous for? Like you have this endorphin rush, you get this sort of almost orgasmic high, and like, oh, euphoria, euphoria and bliss. It doesn't do that because we're talking about much, much lower levels operating on much sort of smaller tasks and, and, and uh, assignments and jobs and duties and roles and functions. And what it seems to do is that and the brain does seem to be very aware that when something's uh, complete or incomplete, there's a, there's a phenomenon called, the, I think it's, I'll say the Zygonark effect. But I think mm. I've only seen it written down. That's, that's the Russian psychologist who discovered it. But when I see it written down, so I'm really apologies to her and anyone in Russia who's heard this and I've mangled her, her name or the wow. name in my ridiculous Welsh accent. But <laughs> it's noticed it from watching waiting staff at a restaurant who could clearly remember did like long big complex orders for multiple people on one large table and they, they could give them all the different drinks and side orders and food orders and then you know, to recall who had what and when and how they wanted it they were good at that but as soon as the order was done they asked about it they can't remember any of it anymore so like, the brain has this awareness that a task is ongoing and it doesn't like leaving things undone they've done experiments where people like were paid to do a do a task or do a puzzle and they said, okay, experiment's over now, you can go now. And they, they, they sort of, they have the option and they will just stay there and finish it, even though they don't have to, they're not being paid to it. It's sort of like, I don't like things being left undone. And some evidence now suggests that the endorphin molecule or the endorphin function is related to this sense of, right, that is done, that's over, that I don't need to do that anymore. 
you did that, that's finished. You have a small endorphin hit to, and then go on your way. It's like, mm-hmm. here's, here's a penny young boy. Like, <laughs> well done for polishing my fence. So that, that, that's, do you polish fences? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a fence. Someone, but, um, is, someone is bound to have polished a fence here and there. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that probably is a terrible euphemism or something as well. <laughs> but, but there's a, but then some, some evidence suggests that this function is impaired in people with obsessive compulsive disorder, which is why they can't sort of, they can't sense or perceive or, or like they can't cross that barrier of that task is done now. So like the endorphin function isn't working as it should. So they do something and they do it again and again and again and again because their brain can't quite close that loop of who's um who's doing what and and what's happening at this particular particular time. So so yeah, so like the so yeah, there's a you know sorry if someone came to a window for a second. I'll I'll, I'll say that again. So people with obsessive compulsive disorder, they have some sort of impairment in this endorphin functioning, which is what the um, what the, a lot of the current evidence is pointing at. That they they don't have this ability to say a task is done. Now, this part of the brain which says you did that, that's that's done, move on. That's not functioning as it should, and therefore they keep getting stuck in this loop. They can't close the close the brackets, and they keep going on and on and on because the endorphin functioning, which regulates this, isn't isn't working as it should. Hmm. Um, and then, so let's talk about oxytocin. There's, there's, uh, there's so many of these, uh, the hmm. oxytocin is another one that people would like to pin down and, uh, it's related to satisfaction and, uh, well, it's related to the bonding. So, uh, oxytocin is related yeah. to bonding, the bond between lovers and the beloved in your life. Uh, the, it's the cuddle, the cuddle chemicals, some say, hmm. uh, <laughs> child, childbirth and breastfeeding produce it, social bonds produce it uh sex produces it um you actually write it's the it's oxytocin makes the love in love making very very good turn of phrase sir i um i like this thing uh, i'd never heard this before I, you, you write that oxytocin affects women more than men um but that it also has interesting effects in men that are a bit different than in women um and in men, it it encourages men to keep distance from other women or from potential uh, mates. It sort of uh, creates commitment, and the lack of it can break it. So, uh, yeah, tell us more about that. Well, there's a lot of different studies uh, in this which show that men who are given oxytocin, their emotional bonds with their existing partner tend to be enhanced in some way, or like it will govern their behavior more. And also, also the caveat that these studies and tests are always sort of like kind of with small sample sizes because they have mm. to be and that's how the practicality works and you know it's the sort of thing you have to replicate a few times to be 100% certain that this is what happens but it's interesting nonetheless like these are slightly smaller effects but what one experiment which I like showed is that if you like have men who are in relationships and they put them in social situations where they have to talk with other individuals many of whom are attractive single women Give them oxytocin beforehand they will stick closer to their partner and keep a greater distance from the you know the attractive single women uh, than single men do because they you know even though the single men have had the same dose of oxytocin it's like just you sniff it it just goes up the nose it's quite a easily administered thing and because the single men have no existing emotional bond to another woman they don't have anything to enhance really and that does seem to be based on the literature I found, what the underlying function of oxytocin is, in that it's, it enhances existing social bonds. Like like when 
like primates when they groom a lot, like they, their oxytocin levels go up because uh, even if it's even the next of kin, it's sort of normally attributed to uh, sort of mothers and children, mothers and babies, or like romantic partners. But it's very much a it's a social bond between anyone with any connection. I think that's one of the things which proved like, instrumental in human advancement and dominance of the planet in general, that we were able to sort of separate this bonding process from just our immediate reproductive partner and apply it to other people. So we invented the concept of friends, mm. uh, which we you know, people we care about deeply, people we are invested in, but who have no sort of you know, genetic <laughs> sharing. There's no sort of, there's no sort of romantic or mating function there. It's just purely for the social benefits of it all. And that does seem to be something that we are particularly good at compared to a lot of other species. So yeah, so like oxytocin does seem to enhance the existing social bonds rather than create them. Uh, when it comes to men, we actually have a different one, vasopressin, which f- fulfills pretty much the same role. Uh, sort of like with women and men, you have estrogen and testosterone, but both are affected by both. But with men, we have vasopressin, which does seem to be more more keen regulating our, you know, our partners and our mating behaviors. Hmm. And um, strangely, I mean, first of all, how it's so bonkers. You can sniff like oxytocin. You can sniff a chemical that will make you, um, you know, keep your distance from potential mates. That's uh, that's totally bonkers. Yeah, that is totally. Concerned. I mean, that is totally. That's the thing. We should probably regulate that before it hits the shelves. I suppose <laughs> people would probably quite happy to abuse yeah, that i'm imagining the marketing department getting together around a, a boardroom table like okay how do we how do we commit how do we how do we sell the uh the commitment chemical that is so i don't know that's out of this world uh i hope they do more research in that that is amazing to me um and you but you know this oxytocin enhances social bonds but it also the the other side of that is that um, the more enhanced, the more it enhances our social bonds, the more it makes us dislike outsiders. Um, and I think about the social grooming you're talking about, the, the other side of that is like, okay, now we feel so strongly us that we also feel so strongly them. And that's something you talk about. Could you mention that for a minute? Yeah. Like the whole in group and out group phenomenon in that, um, <clears throat> in that sort of, we are very social creatures, but we've, you know, we evolved to belong to a part of our set tribe. And when you're a human tribe, the biggest threat to you is other tribes. Uh, so we have this unfortunate tendency to view others who are not like this with suspicion, with uh, distrust and with uh, negative uh, attributions. And there are some studies which suggest that uh, oxytocin enhances this existing prejudice. So you could argue that oxytocin makes you more racist if you're already a racist of some description. I actually got you know, the Guardian reviewed the book and they sort of flagged up that wasn't the most convincing study. It was quite a small one, a very small effect. And I thought, yeah, well, I, I, I've never said otherwise, but it is an interesting aspect. It does it does go back to the whole idea of oxytocin enhances existing emotional bonds and preconceptions and doesn't uh, you know, create new ones or doesn't make you happy directly. It's sort of more already amplifies the things which already make you happy. But there are lots of ways i think i'd do a whole chapter about this in which we are made happy by things which aren't objectively good or nice or even helpful mm. both to ourselves and to others like people enjoy beating other people in you know sometimes in the actual physical sense people enjoy fighting and like boxing and you know, mixed martial arts and all that that is something people really enjoy doing even though it technically is violence you know it's actually not, not a nice thing to do to someone else, even though you know, it's, it's all mutual, it's all consensual, I'm not saying, but some people do get off on 
attacking other people and beating them up and dominating others. We are very conscious of our social status and uh, we are we want to be liked and respected or sometimes even feared by others. We want to dominate other people, however that happens. And that is not a nice thing for someone on the receiving end. But even even if it's done with the best intentions or even if it's done like with pure, no malice whatsoever, things like if you want to be the world's best athlete, if you want to marry the world's most beautiful man or woman or whatever, that's fine. That's a, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable goal. But that means if you achieve it, that means no one else can be those things or have those things because there's, no, there's not enough to go around. You want to be the richest person on earth. You want to be the first man on Mars. Good. But then if you do that, then someone else, then no one else can do it. And by, by you doing it, you, you're going to end up with you know, competing against everyone else who also wants to do it. And then you know, someone's going to lose out. So like we we have to we inevitably end up re- reducing other people's happiness in pursuit of our own a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that does actually come up. Um So uh, serotonin is the other one now. So this is the one that, uh, you know, well, many people are familiar with through, uh, you know, antidepressants, anti-anxiety uh, medication and uh, SSRIs. Um, so serotonin seems to be related to happiness in some way, to mood, to an overwhelm, to an overarching sense of well-being and a lack thereof. Um this is something that, uh, and I'm actually going to make a, a we, we have a second podcast we're about to start about things that we don't know in science, uh, known unknowns in science. And this is the, one of the first episodes for sure. And I'll, I'll definitely would like to have you back for that. Um, but mm-hmm. we can, we can broach the subject, which is, um, so we don't really quite know how these drugs work, right? Like we know that they do work for some people and they work in varying and different and nuanced ways, but we don't really understand why and you mentioned in the book that you know if it was just a you know ssris first of all you can tell us how they work um and and based on how they work it seems like they should work immediately because they because of their function but instead it tends to take weeks before they actually work which which brings up a the mysterious aspect of what is happening and what is happiness in general so if you could speak to that yeah, um, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, <clears throat> they are, well, basically they are drugs which stop the removal of serotonin from the synapse. So like when, you know, so when serotonin neurons uh, function, they fire serotonin into the synapse to create the signals in the following neurons and create this brain activity, which fulfills all the functions it does. And in depression, there was a monoamine hypothesis, which was dominant for a while, but not so much anymore, because lots more of the stuff has come up in that people with depression have reduced levels of these important neurotransmitters. So the whole chemical imbalance uh, term applied to depression, which is still still used a lot, but still it's gradually fallen out of favor, I think, as more and more information comes to light. So what these uh, serotonin reptic inhibitors, like uh, when, uh, when serotonin is used in the synapse, it's usually reabsorbed back into the original neuron, which squirted in there. And these drugs stop that happening. So serotonin just lingers around a lot longer, causing more activity. I sort of liken it to when you, you know, when your toaster stops working, you have to hold it down longer to just keep them to get the bread to the right level of toasted. And these sort of do that. They keep it in there longer to sort of get the activity back to normal. Drugs for um, Parkinson's disease, they do a similar thing with dopamine. They just boost dopamine levels uh, because, like in Parkinson's, the the, the brain regions which are responsible, they function dopamine, so there's no dopamine where it should be, and these drugs boost it. And that's that's nice. I don't know, it's all fairly straightforward. But like I say, 
the drugs enter the system pretty quickly by the metabolism, and they enter the, you know, the, the blood they cross the blood-brain barrier quite regularly. So they're in the brain within minutes of being taken. So if depression was just about not enough neurotransmitter, we should see improvements right away. But we don't. It takes three to four weeks of constant um, constant like administration uh, and also dealing with the side effects too, which are a lot more rapid, unfortunately, before the mood changes occur, if, if they go into. And that is not something we can really explain right now. One theory is that it's because it's not actually about reduced neurotransmitter levels, it's about reduced neuroplasticity. The, the neurons in the brain cannot sort of change and adapt like it normally does. Hence, we get stuck in this very low mood and increasing serotonin and the related activity sort of gradually uh, builds this back up. So rather than like pouring water on a fire, it's not that immediate. It's more like fertilizing a plant. It's good, it's helpful, but it takes while takes a while to work it into the system. Um, yes, yeah, so that's one theory as to why antidepressants do what they do. But what it does what it does suggest is that serotonin is uh, responsible in many ways for mood regulation and sort of being able to achieve a, you know, a sense of happiness, a sense of contentment, a sense of pleasure and joy. And without it, then we struggle to do that. But I think when it comes down to all these chemical things, like the, the example I use, it's like it's these are tools the brain uses for various, various different functions to, to attribute like you know, any one chemical as being the happy chemical is a huge oversimplification. And mm. just say, well, you have to, like there's so many claims are saying, in order to be happy, you just need to boost your dopamine, use these five simple tricks. And mm -hmm. that is, you know, I can see what you're saying there, but that's, again, that's a huge oversimplification. So it's like saying, as I put it, it's like saying you're trying to restore a Renaissance painting. It needs more green. Okay. <laughs> Where, why, how? And just give, give it green. And then that's, that's it. So <laughs> that won't help. That's not how it works. You're going to make it worse. You just keep boosting everything. And hoping for the best. Uh, I'm gonna keep that. I'm gonna use that every day now. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> you can't Take just give it more green. You can't just give your life more green, man. Oh, cowbell. Ah, so that's why you 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 launch off of the, all that to say that it's it's you know all of these things are part of what makes. I think you actually say make the hamburger that is happiness. Uh, <laughs> all these ingredients and all these ingredients you can or can be reduced and reduced and reduced until we get to gluons and uh, quarks if you want to. Uh, so let's come from the other direction, which is the, and this is something we actually, the previous episode of, the, of this, uh, podcast, we spoke about, um, how people, uh, instead of working on the self, you work on the context in which the self uh, resides and that can provide more fulfillment than just trying to fix things within you. Um, and, uh, and we, um, so let's talk about some of these contexts. And, but before, before we do that, I want to talk about music because something, uh, in, in, you spoke very briefly about um, scientists that you met who are working to understand why, why we like music so much, why it compels us to dance, why it makes us happy and music that doesn't compel us to dance. Um, and, uh, you know, this, the, the difference between a, a song that just immediately gets you going versus a complex, you know, fusion jazz thing, uh, which can be appreciated in a different way. But, uh, it probably won't get people on the dance floor quite as much as uh, a James Brown song will. Uh, so, um, and you spoke about how with music, it's a balance between predictability and chaos, a specific amount like salt, not too much, not too little. Um, I'd like to hear what you, more about what you had to say about that. And you can tell the, uh, the, the listeners 
what that means and how that really is a great metaphor for just, you know, happiness in general, how the brain is balancing predictability, predictability and chaos and how happiness relates to that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it is actually a very good way of looking at happiness in general. But it's kind of similar to the earlier thing I said about <clears throat> things that you know, make us happiest are a nice combination of familiarity and novelty. Like we like to have enough familiarity to feel safe and another, enough novelty to feel like we're experiencing the new and the interesting. And so something completely new and unfamiliar, that's baffling and scary. Something completely familiar and with no new elements that's boring and dull. And the same thing seems to be happening with music. This is a Professor Krinkelbaum of the Hedonia Institute in uh, Amsterdam, I believe. Mm, great name. And he, yes, exactly. Krinkelbaum. <laughs> <laughs> Proper professor name, that, isn't it? It's really wonderful. Good. Yeah. I, um, stu I study music. I'm Professor Krinkelbaum. Uh, so, <laughs> exactly. Yes. I mean, I don't, I don't think you even have to study if you can say that. You can just say that, and then people assume you're a professor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's what that's will happen. And it's. Yeah, so it's a similar thing. Like the, the brain likes both order and chaos, and but not too much of either. So, like the example I use, a metronome is like tick or a ticking clock. It's extremely predictable. It's extremely organised. There's no chaos to it whatsoever. No um, syncopation is what uh, what they refer to it as. Syncopation, this uh, unpredictability of music. So, like a metronome or clock, it can be like tick, 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 completely regular, completely predictable, has no stimulation to it it doesn't really make you want to do anything whereas like you say free jazz or something like you know, just putting some saucepans in a, in a tumble dryer like clang, 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 clang. there's no actual pattern to it there's no there's no way to anticipate what's coming there's no rhythm there's no there's no sort of underlying pattern to follow or to let you see what's coming next and that is also unpleasant because you, you can't really tune it out you can't really adapt to it you can't really filter out anything you can't really appreciate it because it's so chaotic and most popular music like falls in this nice little sweet spot of like uh, complex enough, but also not too complex to be scary, to be un un unpleasant. An example they use is um, James Brown's funk music. That tends to be a perfect example of that. I'll try that again without belching. And then another example of that, the best example of that is James Brown and funk music, according to the studies. Like the, you know, get on up and get on the scene. That, that seems to have a nice, perfect little uh, hits the window just right there. But you can, like I said, you can have plenty of songs which do that despite your reluctance to it. Like there are songs if you, you know, like, you know something like, you know, people don't like Katy Perry songs or Lady Gaga or whatever. Like they think, oh, this is rubbish. It's just mass produced pap. But if you're, if you're in a shop and it, you're in a queue and then it plays and your foot starts to tap in, you, you don't you don't want to dance, but you sort of seem to have to. It has this subconscious influence over us as well. Hmm. Um. Uh, oh, I love that. I, I took it as a great metaphor for life because it seems to me that happiness a lot of times for me is a, is, is a lack of stress because a, a, it's a feeling of bliss. That's sort of the lack of dread of concern because I know when I'm happiest, I let, I tend to let things go, the laundry, the dishes, the yard. And when I'm unhappy, I find that I do those things to get happy, <laughs> to feel this lack of stress. Uh, and I notice when I'm, I oftentimes, when thing, good things are happening in my life, I'll notice sometimes things around me begin to pile up because I'm like, hmm, I, I feel grounded in some way. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's true for you. Is that true for you? To a certain extent, yeah. Like I'm, I'm in my office now and it's kind of chaotic at the moment because I've been out and about doing stuff. And it's been tolerable for a while, but the more it builds up, it gets to this point, it's right. I can't handle this anymore. This is really getting to me now. 
but I think that that harks back to the earlier thing I said about happiness being uh, a very powerful motivator. And that if you are already happy, you're not really motivated to do much you know, to achieve happiness. So it's like, oh, it's fine. You can you let things go. You're not bothered. And that's actually stems into the, I think Mike, you might want to ask about this later on, but the idea that happy employees are the best employees, that can be the case, but they're also not not ideal either. They can be unhelpful because like they don't, they're not motivated to do things. Like, I'm already happy, so why why would I bother? Or what's, what's the point in doing even more stuff? I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly content how I am. Uh, so yeah, so that that does stem into the whole happiness as a sort of as an end as a goal rather than a state, and which makes you do things and which keeps you productive. You also talk about home and um, uh, home being a place where we feel happiness. This is related to what we're talking about. Uh, I I was I love this framing of it uh, because you talk about how. Um, we're constantly aware of threat and we're looking for threats all around us. And, you know, depending on your personality type, if you're more neurotic, you'll be really looking for threats. Uh, even to the point where you said that um, there are studies where just the letter V can cause people to feel a bit more stressed out because it looks, uh, uh, the, the, the possibly just so story behind it, but I like it, is that they look a little bit like fangs. And so we just immediately are like, hmm, bad, maybe bad thing, mm. um, which I thought was just so fascinating, but the uh, home is a good place because it is so familiar. We've habituated to it. And therefore, if anything out of the ordinary happens, we will detect it more readily. Um, sort of a cocoon of a cocoon of happy that elevates our ability to, to detect danger, a stress-free place where our detection system can turn down to like a low simmer. Uh, yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. That's, that was like part of the fascinating thing in that, <clears throat> pardon me, that was part of the fascinating thing in that our homes, back to the only thing I said about things which become too familiar and too predictable and too, uh, you know, every day, they stop causing a reaction in the brain because the brain sort of tunes them out. And as a result, like, you know, the technically then our homes, the place we spend by far the most of our time, especially when we can't sleep in as well, should be like the most unstimulating thing in our lives. But it's often not. Like our homes tend to make us very happy. Like, I think the example I used in an earlier draft, which got deleted, was um, like, think of the Wizard of Oz. Like, what's the, the most common phrase in that is, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. So Dorothy <laughs> gets transported to a magical kingdom full of endless candy and wizards and scarecrows and adventure, where she's a hero and magic. And all she can think about is getting back to a dusty farm in Kansas full of tornadoes. Mm-hmm. And that logically, that doesn't make much sense. But it's her home. No one ever questions it because, you know, the home is where the heart is, as they say. And but it, it, our homes actually a bit more fundamental than that. They do create these uh, reactions in us because they, they do, like I say, they provide a sense, a safe place on which to engage with the wider world. And like I said, an example is look how many creatures who aren't humans, how many homes there are in the wild, from anything from insect hives and spider webs, even if you want to look at that, or to animal, to elephants' terrains, or a moose terrain and tiger territory. These are all specific places that another creature individual organisms will call a home or they won't call that we call it that but but they make them so it clearly is serving some very fundamental and important biological function and i think i think it is this safe space to which to retreat like i said earlier on like the mice will explore new things if they have a familiar place to retreat to and that that's our that's our home it offers us this it offers us this safe place which is ours and we can we know there's no threats there i mean purely in the logical sense anything familiar 
it means you've encountered it before. And if you encountered it before, and you, it means it didn't kill you, and therefore it's safe. And that's why familiar things can be so reassuring a lot of the time. Hmm. But homes also are sort of far more involved for us. They they are where they, they they meet so many of our biological functions. They keep us safe. They give us a place to sleep. They, where our plumbing is, you know, expelling waste is an essential biological function. That we so, so many people can't go to the bathroom unless they're in their own home. Like they find it a real struggle because. You know, that's that shows what a deep sort of psychological need our homes are making, and that's just the home in the most basic sense. Like consider how much time and money and effort we invest in our homes. We make them reflections of ourselves. They become a big part of our identity. That's why losing your home can be so traumatic. And even like things like homesickness, the idea that you are away from your home and you can't get back to it easily is very distressing for lots of people. Even if it was entirely their choice, like you go travelling, you want to go to boarding school, or you spend six months working in a, in a charity abroad, you get homesickness. This is, you know, even if this, this is exactly what you, you're doing, exactly what you wanted to be doing, you're experiencing new things, new people, but the idea of not being able to see or access your home is distressing. And some people argue that that's an involved response to, to, to discourage people from wandering too far away from the safety of the tribe. This instinct to think, oh, no, I don't like it, and it's a run back is a good survival mechanism if you live in the wild when things can kill you around every corner. Hmm. So, yeah, so like the homes do satisfy so many of our needs and they make us happy in so many different ways. And that's like moving house, moving home can be a massive psychological stress hmm. purely because a lot of the effort's involved and the financial investment, but it's also a risk. Like you're happy here, you're not happy there, but it also varies so much from home to home. Like it's not just, you don't, you don't just need a home and that's it. Like your requirements for a home can be very specific. Like I have several addresses I've lived in when I was a student, moving from home to home, house to house, building to building each academic year. And I have no, no, no not any fond memories. Some of them I have no real memory of whatsoever. Like one house we were robbed and uh, you know, they took a lot of, they took all my DVDs apart from the few Woody Allen films and the Kirby Enthusiasm box set. So I think they're anti-Semitic thieves, but beyond that, I can't, couldn't tell you much. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but they people say like, oh, are you okay? Are you going to be? Well, I mean, I've lost some DVDs, like in about twenty. They were only a pound. They were only really expensive ones. So like, oh, I'm all right. I said, yeah, I mean, if someone was in your home, that's just that's awful. Like this, the violation, it just must be so upsetting. It, was a little, it didn't bother me at all because it was a rented house. Like someone had been in my house, my home, many times before, and it would be after I'd gone. It wasn't really my home. It was somewhere where I was living at the time. Now I have my own house, you know, with all my stuff in it, my family in it. That that would be the more tra- traumatizing aspect now. So, you know, there's it, it, a lot of boxes to be ticked before some somewhere genuinely feels like a home, and that's why people like we live in New York. Like it's, I spoke to a New York um, real estate journalist about this and that. Some people find New York, the city, as their home, for example, rather than a specific mm. location in it, because really competitive cities like you know move constantly because rents change and need to move for work, but if, you, if your house or your, your dwelling constantly changes, but the city itself, the context doesn't, that ends up feeling more like your home than any particular building you dwell within. So, yeah, so there are so many different ways to perceive a home. They they, have, they make us happy in so many different ways. Or, you know, if things go wrong, they make us stressed in far more ways. Hmm. Well, um, I know I've kept you a bit, but I want to get one last thing here because if we talk about home, we're going to talk about work. And so we can <laughs> talk about work-life balance being one of those things that we're, uh, is very commonly the, the, the struggle to get happy, the struggle to stay happy, to be happy, to maintain happiness involves work-life balance. And man, you really find some things in this investigation that are counterintuitive, at least for me. Um, 
And so I guess I'll just go through this in a bit and just sort of throw up these uh, these softballs so that you can like really knock it out. <laughs> which is, um, what did you find? What did you find when it came to what sort of work really makes us the happiest? Yeah, that that was an interesting one because, well, like you say, the phrase "the work-life balance" is so common and so pervasive in any investigation or any sort of argument about happiness or whether you're happy or your well-being or so on. And I mean, I think even the phrase itself is very telling, work-life balance. So like on one side, you've got life, which is like your life. On the other side, you've got work, which biologically would have to mean not life. So work is technically a state of waking death. And uh, I, know, I know many people who have, I have said that, they go, yep, that sounds about right. Because mm-hmm. lots of people don't like their jobs or like they tolerate their jobs and actively enjoy them. And it is a tricky thing because like back to the only thing about having ambitions and goals and aspirations these, these are all things in, in the western world at least we are so so drummed into us from a young age you, know, you can aim high be what you want to be you know follow your dreams and all that but that's all good but there's, there's there are very you know there is certain ambitions like even if someone's like low-key like i want to be a firefighter i want to be a pilot i want to be a doctor i want to be an astronaut there are so many there are, there are only so many ways to achieve that and the majority of work you know the jobs available don't really feed into these. Like no, no one, no, I've never heard a child say, I want to be uh, you know, a retail salesperson. I want to be an accounts manager for a small paper company. These aren't things which people say when they're a kid. These aren't treated as aspirations. I mean, maybe arguably they should be. That's that's, that's, okay. that's an argument for another time, but mm. there's nothing wrong with any of these jobs. It's just that these aren't, you know, socially and culturally, we aren't really given much of a reason to aspire to these things. And uh, no, even something like even like Loki, like sanitation workers, like no one says, I want to clean toilets for a living. It's a vital function. My father often said, like, often jokingly says, uh, like, my, I tell my son, my son's a brain, brain scientist, they think he must be a dustman. I think, well, yeah, nothing wrong with being a, a dustman or like a refuse collector, but anyway, it's supposed to be like, oh, you're, you're a brain surgeon or you're a neuroscientist. That's so much cooler. So, yes, but if all the neuroscientists and all the refuse collectors went on strike tomorrow. Who do you think he noticed first? No one, no one's going to care about the neuroscientists mm. for a few months. Because where did all those guys go? And then, if you if you trash toss pilot up, then that's bound to be what people notice first mm. and foremost. So and there's research. I think, I think I've of... read research where people are uh, they when you look at different job types and pe- the people that report uh, levels of happy, you know, the level of happiness people self-report. Uh, trash collectors tend to be pretty high on that list. Yeah, it's a vital function, and I think they're very underrated. And uh, but again, it's it, it, it's a tangible thing too. The jobs which give us a sense of purpose, which let us you know, sense that we're doing something, that our efforts are if even not rewarded, that are validated. These tend to be the ones that make us happier. So the people who like work on their hands a lot, engineers tend to be, according to the surveys, generally happier because they can like right. I put my efforts into this thing. Look, I built the thing. There's a thing I did. So you know it's not wasted effort. The brain has a very sensitive mechanism for analyzing how much effort a task will take and what the likely reward is. And like I think I, I, I've dubbed it the "is it worth it" circuit. So you'll assess it and think right. If I do this, what will I get from it? Shall I do it? Shall I bother? Because obviously wasted energy is bad in the survival sense. So this keen sense of not wasting effort is really useful, really important. And as a result, we can, um, you know, this, again, each brain is different and the, the balance shifts a lot from person to person. Like I personally think, well, the, the, the kitchen sink is full. I don't like looking at it. So if I, if I put the effort into it, I won't have to deal with that anymore. And I'll, you know, I, I think that's a good thing to do. Whereas I lived with 
lots of different people who uh, did not see it that way. So they said, right, <laughs> the kitchen sink is full, but I don't want to do it. So I'm not going to do it. Like, and that, you know, so like there are different approaches to this sort of thing. But lots of jobs are like that in that they you know, provide you with a task to do. And you've got to do it because you need the money. Back to the money thing, we know money is essential for survival. And that's why we do most of the jobs we do, no matter how unpleasant we find them. Because we know we need to, and we have you know downtime outside of it, the work-life balance again. But if you can find a job which uh, sort of facilitates your ambitions, pardon, or provides you with a sense of accomplishment, achievement, of competence, these tend to be the best ones. And you can sort of tell these things because people identify as them. They, they become part of your identity. Like you say to someone, "What do you do?" And they say, "I am a doctor. I am a pilot. I am a fireman. I am a forensic analyst, or whatever they are." Or say, what, what do you do? Oh, I work in retail. I work in accounts. I work in middle management. They don't really see themselves as their job. They just say it's something they do. Whereas if your job is what you want to be doing, you tend to be far more, it becomes part of your identity far easier. Mm-hmm. And you say that, uh, you know, insisting on constant happiness in the workplace is something that can throw all of this out of balance. Why is that? Well, it's again back to the whole effort and reward thing. Like so, the rule of thumb, the default state of most people would be to, I would like to get the most reward for the minimal effort, and that is sort of just a logical approach to take to life. For starters, uh, you know, but there's such a big uh, sort of corporate interest in making your employees happy, and it makes perfect logical sense. Like I say, like even if you even if you are as an employee, you hate your employees, you think they're all worthless scum. You still want them to be happy because happy employees, as also the argument goes, are far more useful. They're more productive. They do more. They don't complain as much. They don't ask for as much because they're already happy and they don't cause any problems. So therefore, happy employees are much better for your business and more profitable. And that's the the basic underlying argument of that. Mm -hmm. But yes, sorry. Go ahead. I see it. But what makes an individual employee happy? What makes the management happy aren't necessarily the same thing in that. The employees want to do as little work as possible for as most money, and the management and upper, you know, the upper echelons of the company, they want the employees to do as much work as possible for the least money. Mm-hmm. These are completely logically incompatible, and therefore attempts to make people happy, you know, despite not giving them as much money as they, they would like, uh, always going to be counterproductive, or always going to be confused because it's a, the idea of treating employees like this herd of unthinking like resources, like, you know, trying to treat people like numbers doesn't really help because they aren't. Like the human brain doesn't respond well to that. So you can have all these away days and sort of management and team bonding sessions. That only really works if the employees who are trying to be bonded are away, aren't aware of what's going on. And invariably they are. So like, like you say to them, you know, you've got to come on this team building session for to make you happier. So I don't want to go. You've got to. Well, that's that's a, that's a bad start there. Like you've just completely removed any autonomy from me and. Uh, You've forced me to do something I don't want to do. Mm. And I know why you're trying to do it, because you're trying to make us more profitable and more cohesive. But I don't like my coworkers. I don't want to be here. I'm just doing it for the money. And mm. that it's a really hard hurdle to get around, that is. It's, it's such a series of strange loops, because the brain doesn't want to work hard for no reason, nor does it want to do mindless, easy work that involves no challenge or autonomy, mm. um, you know, or no sense of mastery and purpose, as they say. Uh, so, you know, doing what you love isn't necessarily loving what you do uh and as you say in the book happiness itself is already work for the brain it's taxing on the brain to just be happy so being mm-hmm. happy and working is a task on top of a task um and so so what do we do dean 
uh, well, like you, you're like me, you can give up your job and do writing full time instead. That was a, <laughs> that that was a good move, it turns okay. out. Okay, good, yeah, okay. Yeah. Everybody, anyway, quit. everybody just quit. Uh, yes, because I'm sure that'll have no lasting impact on the economy whatsoever. <laughs> and, um, but it, it is, it, it's, a, it's a tricky one, it's challenging, but it's also, I think it would help if people just accepted the fact that not everyone's going to be able to do their dream job. Like, there aren't enough dream jobs to go around, or if there are, there's, we need different dreams. You know, like I said, like nobody dreams of being a barista, but it's still a valid job, and people still like their coffee. So that, you know, if, if you were, if we could sort of become more convinced that that's a valid approach to take and a good career path, then probably would be happier with that. But I think. One thing that would be helpful, I think, like this idea that you know, like, the idea that all employees must be happy and we must make them happy is similarly unhelpful to the whole idea that you must be happy to be a proper person. Like, you know, a lasting happiness is the ultimate goal. You must all work towards it. it like I say, like, the brain being happy, because happiness isn't the brain's default state by and large, being happy would use up a lot of brain energy, like all the dopamine firing, like dopamine, dopamine manufacturing is a very complex and quite a toxic process for the brain. It does cause a lot of byproducts which need to be removed. Hmm. So constantly being happy would be exhausting for the brain. Even like the most enthusiastic extrovert, they still need to down, they still need to sleep, they still need some privacy now and again. So this idea that you must always be happy and working is neurologically an unhelpful move. So just being able to, just being able to accept that not every employee is going to be happy, to let them get on with it, and you know, to, you know, as long as they do their job, that would, I think I think it would be a lot more helpful if employers and employees had a more honest relationship. In that, yeah, we know you don't want to do this job, but we are paying you to do it, so please do it, and then do your own thing. I think that would be a more honest and perhaps helpful relationship because there's a sort of, sort of mutual respect all around this. I guess we know we don't want to do this job, but we're paying you to do it, so do it. Employees, okay, fine, as long as you're aware that you know I'm not expected to be all happy, clappy, and dance into your tune and, you know, sharing your five-year corporate vision. These aren't things I'm going to do. As long as everyone put their cards on the table, that would be a more, I think, a more productive and helpful relationship in the, in the workplace. Hmm. Ah, well, mm, so I'm going to go try to be very happy today based off of these, uh, this sage advice that I've received from science itself. Um, you, uh, the book goes into so many other things we could never get into, uh, isolation versus fame, uh, sex, uh, the dark side of happiness, uh, how happiness changes through, uh, our, uh, lifetime. Um, everyone needs to get it, read it, become better at being happy. And, um, so how do people keep up with what you're doing and what are you doing next? Um, I'm, I'm called, you just on my Twitter account or my at Garoboy at G A R W B O Y, uh, or like my website, beanmanette.com. Very straightforward. No one had taken that already. Um, next, well, in the next few months, I'm sort of doing the book promotional cycle. It's uh, released in the US in, on May 29th. I'm Canada as well. And, um, few of more overseas versions coming out soon after that. So I'll be working on that for the next few months. So I may be popping up near you or at least in a virtual online presence of some, some description. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com to pitch in and make the show better, to get 
uh, the show ad free. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Follow the show at not smart blog on Twitter. Follow it over at Facebook, just slash you are not so smart. I am on Twitter at David McRaney. To get the show notes for the episodes, to get links to everything that we talked about, go to youarenotsosmart.com. Go find the previous episodes over at Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and youarenotsosmart.com, and really, you know, wherever you get podcasts. I'm very excited to tell you that we have an episode coming up about the elaboration likelihood model with one of the creators of that model soon, along with episodes about logical fallacies and fake news from top to bottom with experts at every single angle. All sorts of cool stuff coming up soon. I will see you then.